So, deserving listeners, as I've talked about before in previous episodes, my malpractice insurance, it sends me case examples of situations in which a therapist gets sued successfully by their clients or someone else. Whenever I see these emails, I always read them. There, There's so much that can be learned from what is in these case examples. You not only learn about the law, of course, but you learn about ethical codes. You also learn how these laws are applied, which is actually not always intuitive and doesn't always match up with the common understandings within our field. Judges and lawyers and juries, they don't always agree with the way that us therapists, us counselors see things, and they sometimes make very weird decisions. So these case examples show us how these people apply the law to our field, because the law is applied to us from people outside of the field. It's important that we understand this stuff so we can avoid getting in trouble and we can avoid getting sued or we can avoid losing our license or we can avoid sleepless nights where we're like on, you know, we're teetering on our, you know, losing our profession, our livelihood. Another reason why I love these case examples is because of Schadenfreude. I get a little bit of pleasure reading about these, uh, reading about the misfortune of other people, particularly when the therapist is clearly acting um, unethically, aka stupidly. Uh, uh, Bob is with me on the podcast. Does that make me a bad person? No, no, no. I we find amusement where we find amusement, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the pratfall of the counseling business, you know? Yeah. It's like you're watching if someone someone falls over and you, and they're okay and you sort of <laughs> laugh and uh, you know, it's all about that. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about a case example in which a therapist was successfully sued for doing something that therapists actually commonly do. I can't tell you how many times I have had to redirect a supervisee away from the cliff that this counselor fell off of. I'm actually currently working with a new supervisee who is totally headed toward this cliff. Her first supervisor apparently didn't care or didn't know that she was heading toward this cliff. And the supervisee reached out to me for help because she was freaking out. And I've been working with her on almost on a daily basis trying to trying to get her from not falling off this cliff because of just her ignorance, her supervisor's ignorance, and, you know, just common misunderstandings that led her to, you know, very close to a cliff with, with a number of different clients. And so I'm working with her, picking up the pieces, trying to wrap everything up, and hopefully she can, you know, get out of this. I think things will be fine, but but... So you can't even necessarily depend on your supervisors to help you with this. As you well know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bob has said that because, actually, let me thank Bob publicly here. I have, as everyone knows, been working on a book on supervision, and Bob is a legit writer, and so he has reviewed my book twice now. Twice? No, just the once. Oh, just once. Okay. And provided... Uh, comment after comment uh, <laughs> which is which is helpful you know um you know when you're when you're reviewing i people always you're laughing and you're looking at me like you feel guilty or something but mm. it's it's um i don't have i think i've told you this before off the air but i don't have much of an ego when it comes to writing i don't consider myself to be a good writer and so when editors that are actual good writers pr- 
provide feedback. I, I'm more just kind of curious about like, oh, that's interesting that that's how it comes across, you know, because you just never know how your writing is going to come across to someone. It, it makes sense in your head, but h- how does it come across? That's the important thing. You know, it doesn't matter how it rattles around in your mind. It right. matters what is the reaction in another human being. That's the key. And so to get that feedback is like, oh, okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> you know, I, right. I should have, I should know that detail because that's not what I'm trying to say or, you know, so, and I don't have any ego about, it's not like I finished the, you know, cause this is like, I don't know, the 50th version of this book, the draft. It's not like I finished it and went like, yeah, I knocked it out of the park. That's a home run. So, you know, I, at best it's like, you know, a swing, a check swing or something of a, <laughs> if we're going to do use the, the baseball metaphor. And so I'm not, uh, opposed to uh, so thank you so much bob sure. for providing all that feedback it'll, it'll definitely absolutely make it a better product and all the other people incidentally a number of you patrons have actually provided feedback that has also been extremely helpful namely noah and ryan and nathan and actually my good friend sarah she is a, a professional editor as well and so she she's been helping with me as well What's um, the ETA on that? Do you know? Uh, very soon. I, I am getting the final edits from, from – I, I still need it from Sarah, and then I'm going to do an, a final uh, run-through maybe next week, and then and then I'm just going to be done with it because uh, you just have to yeah. – you know, you just have to uh, pull the pin, so to speak. Right. And take the leap, and uh, it'll never be perfect. And frankly, I don't care. You know, I, I'm going to self-publish, and if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. Uh, as a as a reader of other, you know, at Antioch as a professor, I read people's papers all the time, and you know, there are typos and there are you know little kind of weird areas. But I, as a reader, I'm mostly looking for you know what's the gestalt here? What do right. I walk away with? Right. And if the message is worthy, you know, all the other stuff is incidental. You know, if I catch typos in in legit published books sometimes, sure, and or weird sentences or weird structure, but right. I don't go like, you know, I don't throw the book across the room. I'm just like, well, you know, that's not how I would have done it, right. or maybe this was a little rushed. But if you make the point that it's not about the typos, it's about what is the message, yeah, and. And the the good feedback from people, particularly this latest, this latest draft, is people are saying, "I'm getting the message loud and clear, and it's and it's convincing." You know that the state of supervision is not great, and there needs to be something done. And uh, and uh, so, I mean, is that your impression of of what? Yeah, it's totally my impression. I've had many bad supervisors. Yeah. Some good ones. And uh, for folks who are out there interested in becoming supervisors, Kirk's book is a very good reference. Totally mm-hmm. worth your time. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. That's what I was hoping it would be is to summarize. Because a lot of the different supervision main literature out there, I mean, you have a lot of research, which isn't – it usually focuses on one particular thing, you know. And then you have the the main supervision books out there. And they are – they're they're sort of textbooky if that makes any sense, yeah. and they don't they don't lay out actual best practices. You right. know, it's a lot of it's like stuff designed for a classroom, I suppose. 
but it's not designed for like, well, th- what do I do with that? Right. You know, and so th- this book provides all that. Plus, as a supervisor myself for almost 20 years now, I have a lot of stories and a lot of thoughts. <laughs> and as a supervisee for 20 years, I have a lot of stories and a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings. And I, it's not just an acad- – so I provide all the academic and research pieces of it. But I also provide just this – all these like very – I don't know how to say it other than just heartfelt – uh, experiences about what supervision is exactly and the meaning of it right. and trying to make everyone more uh, empathetic towards everybody yeah. is kind of the main point here um, while also trying to be professionals about this whole thing. But yeah. anyway. Um, That's what's good about your book, though. Uh, is it? It's, it's a balance between folks. There's a lot of research went into this book. Yeah. Kirk must have read everything. I read, yeah, thousands of research articles. Yeah. 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 Well, they're all in there. Yeah. <laughs> Referenced. Yeah. yeah. Half, so, half the book is the reference chapter. Right. Yeah. 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 So, but the thing is, though, um, that makes it uh, dependable. Yeah. You know, you can you can read it and confidently right. Right. accept the message that you get about what is good supervision and what are its facets. Right. There's, you know, actual empiricism that right. has been going on for decades yeah. that you can call upon so as, as a guide. Yeah. It's know? not the Kirk Honda show of how to be a supervisor. It's really a very good companion if that's something you're pursuing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I learned so much. I mean, that's part of the reason why I wrote it was as I was diving into writing it, I started to think, huh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and and then I thought, well, maybe if I wrote about it, I could kind of, uh, it's almost like taking notes when you write, right? It's sort of, you internalize right. it. The more yeah. you write, like now, especially after revising this thing, I, this book I've memorized in my mind. Yeah. You know, even particular studies I've memorized because right. there's certain studies that are so, anyway. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? Uh, my name's Bob Gettle. I'm a friend of Kirk's from graduate school way back when and a counselor here in Seattle. Yeah. We met all the way back in 1995, back when I was, I don't know, probably 25, 30, probably 40 pounds lighter. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you had longer hair. You had oh, a, no, you had short hair back then. I had a very, I had a, I had a, cr- a very cropped cut, yeah. but then I decided I wasn't going to ever cut my hair again. So by the end of graduate That's school, right. I had this this very crazy, gross, long '90s hair, and you had a goatee, if I remember. Right. Oh, oh! You, you were so, it wasn't so bad. Uh, Have you ever had a beard? Yeah, I had a beard right after grad school for about yeah, um, I don't know, a year maybe. I feel like you could rock a beard. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this episode in which we talk about a case example is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go to Patreon and then just search for Psychology in Seattle and you'll find us. Become a patron and you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics, such as this case example. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, so this case example, Bob, it involves an agency, and it's kind of an interesting agency. It has 11 counselors who are all specialized in child, family, and adult counseling. 
and they all maintain their own client records, their own insurance building, uh, billing, and their appointment scheduling. So it's kind of like a group practice. Is right. that what you would call it? Yeah, yeah, more like a confederacy. Confederacy. Is that an actual thing that people say, confederacy? I don't think they say it uh, post-Civil War, but <laughs> yeah. they could. Yeah. I'm guessing it was like my internship site. The, when I fir- the, my first, my, well, I got fired from my first internship, at, uh, which I've talked about before, but my, my second internship, which I consider to be my real first internship, was at this agency, and it was very similar to this. It was, it was, it was a group practice that was sort of becoming a mental health agency, and when I first got there, it, they were sort of half and half. So they had many counselor, or a few counselors who did it like this, where they it, they were basically in private practice. They did their own scheduling, their own billing, and they were in this office together. That was actually a house that was renovated into an agency. And but they also had this this other group of people who were employees of the agency, run by the executive director, who was also a therapist, who was just one of the therapists. You know, it was just like a group practice. And one of the therapists said, "Huh, I'll start I'll start hiring other people, and then I can pay them for and interns and pay them nothing, and actually you know get get some of the money from it." Um, was I it down Federal Way? Yes, it was called Federal Way Youth and Family Services. Yeah. Maybe it was a nonprofit. I don't know. Yeah. The point is, is that. Uh, that's important as as we move forward. But um, anyway, uh, so if it, if it was anything like my experience, basically clients come to the agency, group practice of 11 people, because they've heard about it through word of mouth or something. The clients are distributed somehow to the individual counselors, and the agency collects a fee from the clients, and then the agency pays the counselors by the session probably. And then there's probably like a group – expense thing that it's, you know, for the, maybe the receptionist and the rent and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it also appears that all the counselors were fully licensed and therefore didn't need any supervision. I'm not sure, but it's, mm-hmm. it appeared that way. Um, so the counselors in the agency would meet for quote unquote weekly lunch meetings. Basically it was, they would just, there was like a, like a employee area or, or some staff room or something. And once a week, they would all kind of meet and have lunch together, probably as a morale building thing. But also, they would discuss cases. But it was extremely informal. So there was no, there was no notes taken. There was no documentation of anything. It was just uh, very informal. But they would they would discuss clients by name. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like oh, I have this. It was like. So, so-and-so, you know, because they were treating it, it, to me, when I read it, it was like they were treating it kind of like an agency, but kind of not. Because at an agency, like official mental health agency, you have official case consultations that are, you know, mandatory, and you might even document those case consultations. And because you're a collective mental health agency, you share files, and it, the, the setup is such that there's no confidentiality uh, you know, for clients who come into the agency, the file can be viewed by anyone at that location, essentially. But in this situation, when you have a group practice, it's not always clear about it's. In fact, it's usually not that way. Usually you have 11 different individual practices that have their own confidentiality bubbles, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Is that how you would see it? That is. Right. So it's a it's a little weird, and I don't know the details because they didn't go into detail, but it seems like they were already kind of playing with fire in this situation by, you know, is it breaking confidentiality? Right. I, I don't know, but it, it kind of sounds like it to me. 
Um, plus, why would they have to name names? I mean, why why couldn't they uh, speak in a more general way? Yeah, you know, yeah. like, oh, what if I had a client? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, yeah. Um, but uh, it, uh, in the case example, they talked about no documentation of these events. Um, so the question for later is: Were these meetings official case consultations? Can these meetings be considered when one of the therapists gets in trouble? Because when a therapist gets in trouble, all consultations are considered, uh, you know, in terms of official consultations. Because if the the thing I always tell people is, it's it's not a matter of doing the right or the wrong thing. It's a matter of doing the the consulted thing or the isolated thing. So you can do. In some cases, the wrong thing, but as long as you consulted about it and a group of your peers said, yes, this is the right – if a collective says – if a collective does something wrong or advises someone to do something wrong, then that, that's a protective factor when you get in trouble. Whereas if you do something wrong in isolation, then your, your head's on the chopping block. You know, there's, there's no defense against it. And you can't get retroactive consultation. You know, expert, I mean, experts can come to court and say, like, yes, this is something that I would have done. But it doesn't hold as much water as, as um, whether, you know, if you got five-year peers said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. You know, um, the standard of practice is what we talk about there. Okay. So one of the counselors at this agency, one of the 11 counselors, we're going to call her the treating counselor because she's the one who eventually gets in trouble. (laughs) She was working individually with two teens in the same family, a brother and a sister, uh, individually. So, you know, brother comes in for individual sessions and sister comes in for individual sessions. Would you do that, Bob? No, too many hats. Why? It's hard to be the therapist that either one needs, particularly when... Either one has issue with the other. So if I'm the treating therapist for the sister and and my client is having trouble with her brother, it is hard for me to be the counselor that she needs me to be while also being the counselor that her brother needs me to be. I split too yeah. many hats. Good. Uh, I agree in principle with that, of course. Uh, if someone were to do this, would you look at them and say, that's a bad idea? But, you know, or would you just say, is it that's a bad idea? Or would you say, well, that's not how I would like to do it? It's the second one. I have no training in family therapy. And so I don't really, I couldn't say in any informed way how that works or what makes sense. Right. So as a family therapist, I totally understand your position on this. And for myself, might even make that call at Uh times. But as a family therapist, the so you, what you laid out was an actual risk or an actual hindrance to treatment yeah. or or a potential pitfall later on down the road you know right but the benefit to having one person one therapist who is working with both of them is there there's a lot of benefits to that for instance you as the therapist get a better idea about what the context is in which these people live. So, you know, the daughter comes in and says, my brother was doing this and that. And, and if you're just doing individually, it's hard to know. It's like, well, what, what is, why is the brother like this? Right. You know, what's going on in the brother's life that would make him such a jerk to his sister? Right. Well, if you're actually working with that guy, then you have a context. You're like, oh, okay, well, I know the brother has these defense mechanisms around. He's reactive. He has PTSD or, you know, whatever it is. And you're not going to necessarily tell the girl in that, you know, in that situation, 
well, your brother has PTSD. I mean, you might, but the the broader point is like, as a person who is now working with both people, you can start to like help them even when you're working individually. So would you say this is the difference between thinking about things individually as opposed to thinking about things systemically or something in that neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. And I do both, you know? Uh, and, uh, so right. And, um, uh, and I, so anyway, my, as if uh, it's something that most counselors don't do, Yeah, your position is the, is the dominant position, but in the family therapy world, we enjoy the messiness of systems and don't have the worry so much about it because we're because more commonly what would happen in this situation, which might have actually helped this treating counselor stay out of trouble, was if you from the beginning treat it like a family because it right. from it it sounds like she from the beginning treated these two people like individual clients. Um, instead of so it yeah. it's it's a whole other thing when you say like you know ma you know presumably mom said I need you to treat my two kids because they're having troubles. If you as if when I tell people to, to do this all the time, have everyone in the into the first session, yeah, and say you're all clients and the client is the family. Now I might meet individually with some of you and we might even talk about some individual things with or without your family members in the room, but. You guys are the family client, yeah. and you all get the same rights, and you all sign the disclosure, and you all agree to the goals, and you're all involved. Right. And and there's no confidentiality between anybody here. Right. And if someone else wants to come in, you know, grandma or blah blah blah, let's you know, let's get them all in here. And that, and then when if you start branching off and doing individual sessions with people, uh, uh, in conjunction with that overall family approach then it, it looks differently to outside eyes. So that's something that might have been able to help this person. What, what, you've never done anything like that before. No, but, um, you know, in the last 10, 12 years, I've done a lot of training in marital couple therapy. Yeah. And um, one of the ways that it's informed my individual work for the better is to think about my client in terms of her or his context. Yeah. So, for instance, if somebody comes in and she's got trouble with her partner... Um, this happened yesterday. Uh, somebody came in was having really big problem with their partner. There's a lot of betrayal and so forth. And part of our work together was to think about individual therapists can kind of sort of gang up with their client on the other people that are causing client pain. And there's a kind of loyalty and it sort of makes sense on the one hand. It's not useful, but it makes sense. But if, if we take a broader if we think about things in context, like this person's in a relationship with this other person and how are they cross-affecting one another, I think we do better work. Yeah. You, yeah, you say it, I can't, what was the word you used? You said it's natural for a therapist to do that, to, to be like, to, to sort of be loyal to their individual client? Individual therapists, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have a tendency that way. Right. And so, and the way that I would frame that is it's typical or understandable that you would be tricked essentially by countertransference. You know, yeah. it, that's, that's how I, it, because our goal is to be helpful. Right. Our goal is not to be loyal to our clients. I mean, our goal is to build a relationship, Sure, but our goal is not to create a little consortium, a confederacy yeah, right. against the union. 
um, it, the the goal is to be helpful, and and the yeah. client is hiring a counselor to help them with their relationships. And what good does it do to triangulate against uh, you know this outside person? Yeah. And and that's something that um, as as a family therapist, you get involved in that for sure. I mean, it's right. not like family therapists are. Uh, not uh, vulnerable to that, but the the issue is is that uh, when you treat people uh, more than one person in the system, the system basically beats that out of you because you 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 start realizing oh there's a total other side to this fucking story right. that. I would never have understood right. in my soul and would have probably not even imagined could even be there right. unless I actually interfaced with that human being. Right. And that's why I get up in arms with a lot of people who, uh, and frankly, family therapists you know, do this too, become triangulated and biased against other people in the system. Yeah. And 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 as a family therapist, I strive to be uh, like <laughs> I'll never forget it when I this was a long time ago. I had a uh, a, th- a client, and she she says, "Oh, you know, uh, are, do you have any openings in your practice?" Because I was thinking about you know someone was asking me about whether or not uh, I you were a good therapist, and I said, "Yeah, you know, I, I want I, you should go see Kirk. You know, he's great." And then. Uh, she says, yeah, and my friend said, oh, he probably is just this really nice guy, and you know, he like holds your hand. And she's like, and my client said, uh, no, actually, he does it. he's very skeptical about everything I say, actually. <laughs> and she's like, and, it, you know, and that's probably a good thing. You yeah. know? And, and I remember just being like, oh, really? Is that how I am? <laughs> but, but I am. You know? I mean, I, I'm, I, I would like to think that I'm caring, um, but but I'm caring in a way that doesn't mean that I'm a friend who's listening to someone complain. You know, if a friend comes to me and complains, I'm going to be like, well, maybe I well, you know, from personal experience, I might not even do it then. But if I don't know someone really well, let me put it that way. If, if I didn't know someone really well and they were complaining about their spouse, I would be like, wow, what a jerk. Because I'm like, you know, what else? That's probably what they want to hear. Sure. And I don't know them well enough to be able to say like, well, you know, maybe we should look at this f- from the bigger picture. You know what I mean? Or not, I wouldn't say that to a friend, but um, I just would have a, a more general approach of like, in my mind, I'd be like, well, there probably is another side of the story. Right. And so uh, anyway, uh, there's a there's just so much value. And I'm glad that you're, you know, like... Um, allowing your clients to teach you because that's the thing you know your clients they they teach you when you interface with systems they teach you that any individual perspective is just one individual within a context you know what i mean i do yeah anyway so getting back to this treating counselor at this group uh agency of 11 people uh so this counselor is treating two teenagers in the same family individually and what I'm saying is that's not a terrible thing, it, and it's not um, on its face unethical. Yeah. It prevents it, it presents certain risks. The other thing is like why not just ref, why not just another person see the other kid, and then you could consult in, in this agency. I mean, you have other people down down the hall. 
Um, and the other thing is like, well, if you're going to do two people in the same family, why not just do family therapy right. and just treat it like family therapy? Right. That's a good point. You know, so, but anyway, the counseling was focused on behavioral issues and because presume that sort of code for, you know, the kids are being dicks essentially, you know, <laughs> like they're the technical jargon. The, the typical things are uh, breaking curfew, bad grades, smoking pot, talking back, not doing chores. Um, yeah, there's a certain uh, – I have a feeling like teenagers just have this, like, checklist. It's like, okay, how to piss off your parents. and Anyway, um, and also the stress of their parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. So the two kids were uh, going – you know, so you had two parents and two kids, and the parents were getting divorced. And there's actually a custody battle that was very stressful that was happening at the time. Um, the mother was also seeing a therapist at the agency, but a different one. But the father was not in counseling. Okay. So, again, very typical situation. You have a family that's going through a difficult divorce. The mom is, is seeing some concerning behaviors in the kids because of the divorce, because of the ongoing conflict and whatnot in the system. And the mother's like, you know what? Let's all go to therapy. And so the mom calls this agency and says, I need a therapist. My kids need therapists. And then that's probably how it started. Very, very common scenario there. Again, my recommendation in situations like that is to treat it as family therapy. Um, and then, you know, if there's a significant individual issue in one of the individuals, by all means, have them have an individual therapist. But you can usually get a lot done in family therapy. Also, the mother and the children are seen together and separately by the children's counselor. So I don't know exactly what that meant in the case report, but. Um, so the mother would join the teenagers in their therapy sessions. Okay. So after a bitter custody battle, because they're always bitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> the mother received primary custody. And how do you think the father felt about this, Bob? Probably not too pleased. Not pleased. Not pleased at all. After several months of treatment, the mother informed the treating counselor that her ex-husband was taking her back to court to request custody of the children. So this is, just as a side note, (laughs) it's so common, right? Have you ever seen situations like that? Yes. Yeah. And it always sort of boggles the mind. Uh, Other than, uh, I took a class by Joe Schaub, who's actually been on this podcast before. He was my divorce uh, mediation instructor that I took. 21 years ago or something. It was an I elective. I didn't know you. I know him. Yeah. Oh, you do know Joe? Yeah. Oh, really? How do you yeah. know Joe? Uh, colleague of a co- colleague of my old individual therapist. He's he he's ha- te- has been teaching off and on at Antioch. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. F- I mean, during when we were in graduate yeah. school. Joe is a lawyer as yeah. well as a therapist. Right. He started off as a lawyer and is the, and became a family therapist. And he's a good friend of Paul David's, actually. And he is big in the uh, collaborative divorce right. movement, yeah. which is, uh, you can listen to those episodes in which we talk about it. He also wrote a book on divorce, which we've talked about on the podcast before. He, the collaborative, just a synopsis of collaborative divorce, it's, it's a, a, a philosophy and an organization of various different professionals, including therapists, family therapists, lawyers, and maybe mediators and and financial people and advocates and other kinds of people like that and um, 
who have the philosophy of what's best for everyone is a divorce process that is fair, but not harming and damaging to everyone in the way that adversarial court is. So when you're in a custody bout, so when when you are suing the, you know, your your dry cleaner burns all your clothes to, you know, and, and gives it back to you. And you're just like, uh, this was, you know, this was like $3,000 worth of clothes. I, I don't know who has $3,000 worth of clothes. But you know, just imagine this. Sometimes my na- people. <laughs> sometimes my my analogies start kind of weird, and I just have to kind of go with it. But anyway, so imagine that happens. Well, when you go to court, you have to you know demonstrate that you were damaged. And if the dry cleaner, it, if if their contention is, well, all of your clothes came in with gasoline on it. So and we didn't, and you didn't tell us, so it's not our fault or whatever. So. You get experts and you fight, and you will say everything to you know demean the other side. You might even call into into question their character. You know, it's part of a game, and the game is about winning and losing as opposed to what's the, good. Or the useful. gestalt end result, yeah. right? So it's about trying to tear down the other side and build yourself up. It's an act of narcissism. It's an act, you know, I mean, right. It's, it's a, it's an act of like, I'm a hundred percent right. I am not wrong at all. Right. And the other side is a billion percent wrong. Right. And there's something seriously wrong with them. You know, well, when you're going through a divorce and you go through the normal legal system, that's the model. You know, the, each person lawyers up, and that lawyer's job, ethically, is to do that, is to completely destroy the other side, to drum up anything, to, you know, sexual abuse hints, uh, c- character questions, uh, any possible transgression that happened. And then if the other side presents data, then your job is to tear it down and right. say, like, that's ridiculous, hearsay, it's, you know, it's inadmissible or whatever. Yeah. Well, when you do that, it always, 100% of the time, everyone is damaged. And the only, the only thing that happens, uh, and aside from like situations in which one of the parents is a legit psychopath, which is, you know, it happens for sure. But usually, in my observation, both, both uh, parents are at fault and they should just try to work out some situation that is best for everyone moving forward. Hence Thank- the term collaborative. Right. And so these professionals work toward uh, trying to bring people together rather than trying to draw them apart. So, so the lawyers agree when they you know, sign up for a collaborative divorce case, according to this organization, they actually sign an agreement saying that if this goes to court, I have to be fired. And you have to hire a new lawyer. Yeah. So it 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 de incentivizes uh, the process of adversarial, uh, and so it, nice. it it totally incentivizes each lawyer to say like, we better come to an agreement. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to get fired. Right. You know. And so so that's just one of the elements, but there's all these other kind of elements to it that that try to you know try to build bridges, you know, and try to build reasonableness. Um, but anyway. So why were we talking about Joe Shaw? So we got on this because there was a divorce and the husband is suing for 
custody again, right? Or bringing that back up in the court. Right. Which yeah. is just so common, you know. So, uh, right. So the, they go to custody battle. Mom wins. After a number of months, the daughter and son and mom are still in treatment. The mother tells the treating counselor, the counselor of the kids, that the ex-husband is taking her back to court to request custody of the children. And the mother, she asks the treating counselor to testify on her behalf, on her behalf. These are the kids' therapists. This is the kids' treating counselor. The kids' treating counselor, yeah. the, The mother requested that the counselor testify that the children would be better off if they remained in custody with the mother. What would you do, Bob? I... I have no idea how a person would know the answer to that question. I would punt. Good. Excellent answer. You you passed my <laughs> stupidity test. <laughs> uh, well, the day is young. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm here to tell you that in these case examples, uh, it almost always goes this other direction. The, the counselor agreed to testify in court. Uh-huh. And I just, okay, so this is, this is, the crux right here. This yeah. is the mistake. Everything could have been avoided if the counselor would have said, well, what would you have said? You know, so the mother comes to you and says, so, uh, Bob, my ex-husband is dragging me back into court again. And, you know, this is bullshit. We've already gone to court. The judge has already said that I get primary custody because, you know, the judge, you know, recognized that this guy is, he gets angry all the time, you know, and he kind of drinks a little bit, you know. And frankly, you've heard it from the kids. They like living with me. So uh, would you please help me out and, and, and maybe provide a report or testify in court that the kids are just better off, you know, with me. And let's just let it lie and not go back and forth to court because it's going to damage the kids, right? I mean, Bob, is that not going to damage the kids? Well, you know, I can't say one way or the other if it's going to damage the kids. I do know that I don't have the background or expertise to evaluate what would be best for the kids to make that kind of recommendation or decision. So I'm not the person that can help you with that. Excellent. Yeah. I I might also kind of sneak in a little bit of like, I get why you're asking me this, and I've been asked it many times, and... I totally empathize with your position and you might be right. You know, you, you, you might be, nice. but, but, and then I would say what you said, which is, I don't have any expertise in that and I don't have any way of measuring that. Um, I would also throw in and ethically speaking, I can't provide that because in my field, assessors of such questions cannot be the actual treating therapist. It's, it's un, it's a dual relationship. Yeah, and, right assessors are supposed to be unbiased. Right. You know, it's sort of be like if the judge happens to be your husband or something that you, you can't, it's, you have to recuse yourself. So you asking me that question, you know, I might have an opinion, but yeah. it's highly biased by the fact that I'm connected with you and with the, and with the kids. But, and I have no, I, I don't have any connection with this other, with right. the, with your ex-husband. And therefore right. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm the last person on this planet you should really ask that. You know, it'd be like asking like a friend or something. Yeah. So so um so I would say all those things, but but a, a friend with a license. <laughs> yeah, right. Um so yeah, there are so many problems with this. Um and I can't tell you how many of these case examples begin or with this 
why in the road in which the counselor says, sure, I'll testify in court. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many reasons why a counselor should be extremely cautious. I'm not saying counselors should never testify in court. I'm just saying that you should just be extremely cautious, and really 99% of the time you shouldn't. In, in, in most cases, it's, it's probably a very bad idea to do it. Have you ever done it? Uh, yeah, uh, for, for various different reasons. And, and frankly, in the beginning of my career, because family therapists get asked this all the time, yeah. you know, because there's custody battles galore. Right. And so I, th- I'm pretty sure it's, you know, it's been 20 years and I've had, I don't know how many thousands of clients, but I, I seem to remember in the beginning doing that kind of stuff and be like, oh, okay. And I didn't get in trouble. Thank God. I don't remember I did, but, but, um, but very quickly after learning more, and becoming a supervisor myself of people, I very quickly was like, wait a second, this is not good. And actually, another kind of critical uh, turning point in my understanding about this was when I got my doctorate in psychology. So psychologists, a, a good part of their job is to provide assessments, right. which is not treatment. It's like it has nothing to do with treatment. It's like a whole other profession, in my opinion. It is. And it is – like there are psychologists who only provide assessments and, and have never – or maybe they had an internship early in their career in which they provided actual therapy. Yeah. And so uh, actually a, a colleague friend of mine, Jude Burkamp, he, that's what he does. He's, he w- – when we talk, he's like, Kirk – you're the one – I'm the one who assesses what's wrong with them, and then you're the one who fixes them. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that's kind of a rough way of looking at it. Well, in the field of psychology, they very much understand that distinction because it's a different – there's a whole different set of activities and ethics and understandings and courses, frankly. You know, I, I took course – I took like I think two full years of assessment and forensic psychology, and – never do you talk about treatment. You know, there's no, in fact, frequently they'd be like, so, you know, make sure you're, you know, so there's all this discussion around that distinction between assessing and treating. But for some reason in the master's level people, there's not enough education around that and there's not enough understanding of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, Instructors and supervisors come from that area of that master's level. And I'm not saying it's the master's level. It's just like the culture of counseling, the culture of therapy or something, particularly in the past. I don't know. Do you think there's something to that, though? Because the master's degree is the minimum needed in order to have a license, uh, which is like the minimum standard to practice. And I've always thought of it as a quick and dirty way to get a license. Yeah. Not that my education lacked. It's just that it wasn't that broad. Right. So are you saying like... It is sort of a fault of the fact that master's education is is kind of quick and dirty. Well, yeah, and I actually think it's kind of incumbent on folks who graduate to seek training, continue seeking training. Yeah, but the simple notion, it only takes one sentence, you know, how many hours is a master's level education, you know, it's, you know, so many, there's so many different hours. Right. At some point... I mean, my estimation, this is anecdotal, is that there are many master's level people who have never even been said the sentence, you do not provide assessments for the people you're treating, and you never provide assessments unless you have competence and have a supervisor who is competent in supervising assessors. And and understand that's a whole other field. Uh, Assessing and report writing and testifying in court, for sure, is a whole other profession 
that you are not competent in. So and so that doesn't take how long did that take me? You know, fifteen seconds. About thirty. Um, so uh, any master's education program could include that, but for whatever reason, culturally, it's just not. Uh, I talk about it all the time. Yeah, good. Yeah, in my program, uh, because I there's there's a there's a number of little things that I try to sprinkle in in whenever I am in front of students. Like this is one of them. Another one is grief therapy is a very specific thing, and that understanding what grief is and how to treat it is actually a very specialized field. And don't think you know it unless you actually get some education and some training and supervision in that. It's not sitting with sad people. Right. It's not, it's not grief work. You know, there, it's not, um, you don't innately know how to help someone with grief is the thing I try. The, The other thing is, is you don't innately know how to treat people with trauma. Like understand that, unless you have a very concentrated education and supervision and experience with trauma and dissociation of PTSD, you do not know how to treat it. In fact, if you just go with your gut, you're going to harm people. Mm-hmm. So I, I say that now they might say to me, well, Kirk, what am I supposed to do? And I say, well, now, you know, <laughs> and I can tell you what to do, but you got to know that because you might not ever hear that, you know? Right. So those are just some of the things that I try to, and that doesn't take long, you know, and just being informed, you know, and then, and then it's up to them to say like, okay, well, uh, now I have to ask Kirk later on about how do I become competent and what's, what's the track there, you know, um, was there anything else that you could think of that you wish your master's program would have, would have told you? And you know, back then the master's program was how many credits was it like 60 60 credits or something total i got done in six quarters including internship so so a year and a half a year and a half so whatever i don't know how many credits it's about 60 yeah give or take yeah it's probably like 60 credits and what is it now it's 90 good yeah Yeah, you think we're turning out uh more competent folk totally yeah yeah it's been more i mean and you know 20 years prior to you and me in school it was even less well, the, it was like a year, yeah, you know, or or three quarters or something. Masters, masters Ma- programs are not that old, right? Yeah, and actually, while we were professionals, they changed that yeah. that counseling. You yeah. know, anyone in Washington State, someone without without even a high school degree. Yeah. could be considered a clinician. <laughs> registered counselor. A registered counselor. The, was it the four hours of age training and a passive background check? Right. And you become registered, which I was when I moved here. Right. I got a job at a mental health clinic, you know, where I didn't need a master's degree, and right. I was indeed a registered counselor. Right. And so was I, but I wasn't actually treated like a clinician. I was, oh, I was yeah. more like a just a worker. You know, <laughs> Me <at> too. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, there were plenty of private practitioners in, in, yeah. in Washington who, right. who had no training, no education. You can't do it now, is that right? Right. They, ch- that- they changed that about 10 years ago-ish, yeah. is maybe, that, maybe five. Is that distinction registered counselor? Does that still exist? No. I think yeah. some people are grandfathered in yeah. for a time, but I think I, I, I have it all written down somewhere. I actually looked right. into it recently. Actually, it's in my supervision book. I wrote about it. Yeah, I remember but, reading. Yeah. Um, and I uh, essentially my point in the book is we, in, in our 
professional lives, we have seen a massive movement and effort to uh, protect the public and to uh, bolster our profession by by increasing standards, by making it so that only certain people with a certain level of education and a certain level of experience can call themselves a clinician in mental health. Right. And whereas 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. Anyone could be considered a clinician in mental health because, you know, that's just, you know, the way things were back then. And so, you know, we had to pass laws and we had to get a coalition together and we had to, you know, talk to the media and we had to investigate. We had to do research and we had to establish, okay, well, what are the standards and what should be the, you know, da, da, da. You know, we had to, we had to put effort into it. Right. Well, in the field of supervision, as it stands right now, for the most part, it's like it was 20 years ago in that for, for therapists, in that basically anyone can be a supervisor. Anyone, especially when it's not tied to like an education requirement, like an agency can just say, okay, you're now, you're now supervising these five people. And there's no, there's no legal uh, or accrediting or, you know, requirement, regulation around what that is. And as a result, what we find is there's a ton of incompetent and harmful supervision occurring because people that have no training and no idea what they're doing are now in charge of other professionals' lives. And in the data, we see that there's terrible things. Just like 20 years ago, when we actually studied what was happening in the field of psychotherapy, you had you had a lot of clients who were being harmed or who, who were getting like very strange treatments, you know, like woo woo kind of stuff. <laughs> right. You just had, you just had some, someone with an eighth grade education and a purple shawl yeah. and they just, you know, were God knows what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, God knows what those people were doing. Mm. And so the same thing's happening now. God knows what these supervisors are coming up with in terms of supervising these clinicians. Well, what I'm proposing in my book is a very detailed, uh, well, not super detailed, but a, you know, a, a specific regulatory recommendation regarding uh, how to regulate the field of supervision and how supervisors need to be trained uh, in a number of different domains before they can become what I'm calling licensed as a supervisor. Yeah. Now, is this going to eliminate inadequate and harmful supervision? No, but it's a beginning. You know, it's yeah. the same thing with with counseling. And uh, anyway, so uh, right, okay. So, getting back to this treating counselor who's treating these two teenagers, the mom is like, so my ex ex husband who's a sore loser dragged me back into court. Th you know, counselor, will you please testify in court saying that that uh, they're better off with me? And the counselor says, sure, why not? I'll walk into that, uh, you know, wh what do they call those things? Those those branch trip wood chippers? You know what I mean? She's just like, what, in Fargo? Yeah. She's just willingly throwing herself into a wood chipper at this point. <laughs> the counselor told the judge in court, so the counselor goes, the counselor goes to court, uh. sits in the witness stand or whatever, and tells the judge, that it would be in the best interest of the children if they remained in custody with the mother. And I'm sure the counselor had all sorts of, you know, a, a data points or whatever. And and, and and the best of intention. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe. 
but we, we don't even know. Maybe maybe the father would have been fine. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, right. I mean, she's she's trying to help. Yeah. And the thing the thing that I like to point out to supervisees when they consider doing this sort of stuff is nobody cares about you. The family doesn't care about your license. The judge doesn't care about your license. The lawyers don't give a fuck about your license. You are the only one in that room who cares about your license. And so they're going to ask you to do all sorts of shit. Because why? They don't give a fuck about you. They just need you to have a license. And they need you to have an opinion, an opinion. that is in agreement with their uh, position, you yeah. know? And so the mom's lawyer says, sure, sure. get that stupid therapist right. on the... On. Oh, you're going to hand me a screwdriver? Sure. I, yeah. I need one. Yeah, please, you know? And, and so uh, unless you protect your license, yeah. uh, other people, no one's going to care. Okay. So, uh, despite the counselor's testimony, the judge granted custody to the father. Uh-huh. This happens all the time. Uh, ha- do you have any experience like this in court? No. Well, not no, not this, no. Have you ever been in family court for any reason? Like divorce no. or a chins petition or anything? No. Family court is screwed. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't, you know, judges, I've learned over the years, because I've been in a lot of these court hearings, I've learned that judges are just human beings. Yeah. You know, we we need to believe they're bigger than life. They wear a robe. They, they're always up on high. They're literally higher than you. Right. You have to stand when they walk in the room. You have to treat them with respect. The lawyers super kiss their ass all the yeah. time. It's all part of the, basically, the smoke and mirrors to make the judge look like they know what they're doing. Right. But judges don't know what they're doing. Uh, they they have more education than the average person about it. They have a procedure they follow. Oh, they have that. Yeah. yeah. And and so, um, but how do you determine as a human being, you're just a regular dude or a regular dudette, and you're on the, you know, you're sitting up there and you're listening to these two, you're, you don't have time to investigate, okay? You have... Maybe four hours of testimony between, you know, lawyers are bringing up different experts from different sides. They might even bring up the parents. They might even bring up the kids. And then it's your decision to say, like, A or B, mom or dad. Right. Mm, Can I go with C? Neither. Yeah. You know, and you got to make a call. Yeah. And and how do you make that choice? Yeah. Well, there's no no, uh, data that are factual. It's all just opinion, right? Right. One expert gets up, says mom's best. One expert gets up, dad's best. You know, and and both have stories and you don't have time to like send a private investigator or hook some up, uh, one up to some non-existent lie detector because it doesn't exist. So you're just trying to, just trying to figure it out. Well, so as a result, family court is just completely messy and I have seen some of the most atrocious rulings are made. I mean, studies show that when judges are later in the day because they haven't eaten, they are harsher against, uh, you know, uh, criminals or people who are being, conv- uh, uh, what do you call it, prosecuted. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the mood of the judge is, right. a, is a factor. The bias, the gender bias sure. of, a, of a judge— the um, uh, the racism of you know there's all sorts of things that are measurable when you look at actual judges and they're they're just humans right and so they make bad decisions that and what I tell people is 
just don't go to family court. Like, do everything you can to avoid because you're basically walking into a situation in which you're just rolling the dice. Who knows what the judge is going to say? Right. The judge could say anything. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I one time had a judge yell at me about about what family therapy was. I won't go into the details, but this this judge I was just there as as just to provide data. I wasn't on anyone's side. I was just there to like um provide some testimony that was that wasn't necessarily an ammo for either side. And the judge which is what I did a lot when I was in court. So I was usually in court kind of kind of like a bystander in a lot of ways, but anyway, the judge that the judge heard about my treatment plan essentially. <laughs> for lack of a better term, and started berating me, berating me. Jeez. And, and at this point, I was a, an instructor of family therapy. Wow. <laughs> and this ignorant, idiotic judge, which I, I say, you know, will, you know, I say yeah. accurately, because she, did, <laughs> she had no idea what she was talking about. Right. I'm an expert in family therapy, and she's telling me. Right. And she, and she clearly, people out there listening, Everyone's an expert in something. So think about some, you know, whether it's scrapbooking or gardening or driving or cars or physics or medicine or therapy or optics or computers or something. You can tell when someone doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, you know? <laughs> like um like when whenever I see therapy depicted in a movie or TV. Oh, yeah, right. It's like you're like, "Oh, someone did a little bit of homework right. and they don't know how to write for you know it's like it's obvious that the writer doesn't know what right. therapy is yes. or what the ethics are or something um and and so that's what it was like you know to have a judge i was like oh boy you really have no anyway right my point is is that uh so you know they 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 awarded custody to the father right Shortly after the trial, the father allowed the children to continue with treatment with the treating counselor. But the father noticed that his children were becoming withdrawn from him, probably because of all the family conflicts. <laughs> probably. But anyway, um, the, uh, the father waits for a bit uh, of time, but then eventually starts to campaign to fire the counselor, which this is very common. You know, the, 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 the therapist goes to court, testifies against the father, the father it doesn't like that and no. doesn't respect that counselor. No. And then over time says, Well, I'll wait a little bit and then but I'm eventually gonna fire that person because, you know, I I, I don't I don't like them one. Well and, this is a ticking time bomb though, don't you think? What do you mean? Well, this counselor has testified against the father, the kids are there. How is she gonna interact with these children when they come to session that doesn't set them up for all kinds of problems? Right. Exactly. Right? Am I gonna badmouth the dad or say, well, how are you going to survive your dad? Right. What am I, what am I going to do? Right. Am I going to say it's a good thing that you're with your dad? What am I, right. what am I going to do? Right. You've, you've planted a legal stake in the ground. Yes. And I now so. you're stuck with it. Right. And so it's just another reason why you don't ever do stuff like this, even if you think it's in the best interest. And even if you, if it's your personal opinion. Right. So it's, it's akin to your friend comes to you and says, my wife is, you know, I hate her and I've been having trouble with her for years. And man, she, you know, years, she's been bothering me. She's bothering me. And then as a friend, you're like, yeah, you know what? I always hated her too. Yeah. You know, I've 
from the be- you know before you even I, when you first when I first met her I was like uh, I don't know I don't know if she's best for you yeah I don't know and then because you're thinking as a friend you're thinking well you know they're about to break up and so I might as well just you know right. just tell them my opinion and on the bias side of trying to support well it when that when your friend ends up staying with their wife you know ten years later at their thirtieth anniversary party you get invited and you know your friend's going to look at you and go like well you don't like my wife right you know and you so planning that stake clinically as a professional is definitely not something you want to do yeah. um in the case report in the in the case example it says that the father began suspecting that the treating counselor had been quote unquote brainwashing his children against mm. him mm-hmm. this is this is a very common thought it's usually usually not true but but it's sometimes true as you were kind of pointing out okay what do you think the father did after this what did the father do well what what do you think like what would you do you're a father you're you're worried right. that your kids are being brainwashed right i'd pull them out of counseling if i thought my kids were damaged i might take legal action if that was my bent okay um I'd probably talk negatively about the counselor to my kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, the father eventually does these things. But the first thing the father did, which is kind of um, curious, but actually uh, at least somewhat common enough that I've seen it before, is the father requested copies of the children's counseling records. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, essentially the father is thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to – I need data to – because I just right now I just have this sort of hunch that this – counselor is working against me right and so if i get the file maybe i can find something in there that can justify me firing this counselor that's that's probably all the father is thinking at this point the the father is probably not necessarily thinking legal or ethical action i don't know we don't know but usually all the father wants and the father's probably thinking well if i just fire the counselor and we go and there's another custody battle then that'll make me look bad but if I have an actual, you know, piece of data to use against the counselor, I can fire this counselor and move on and, and everything will be fine. That's just my guess. Let's be clear that this dad probably very much cares about his kid's welfare. He's right. not a bad guy. Yeah. I assume that until proven guilty yes. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Even when you have an ex-spouse talking shit about the other person. Right. Yeah. Um, now, so the father requests copies of both kids' counseling records, which is completely his right to do at any at any time. Uh, well, so I wonder though. I, I hadn't thought about this earlier, but I, you know, I wonder how old the kids were right. because if the kids are thirteen, then the father doesn't have any right to the client files. But uh, but at any rate, the the father requests copies, uh, which, according to the case example, it seemed like it was his right to do, and. So many times, therapists are not ready for this. Yeah. They get this request, and they freak out, even though it's totally predictable. Whenever there's a custody battle, whenever I work with supervisees, whenever there's even a hint of a custody battle, I say, I need to see your entire client file, and I'm going to go through this thing with a fine-tooth comb, and we're going to talk about every single note you write, because this thing's not only going to get pulled, but it's going to end up in court. (laughs) It's one thing to have it pulled, Something to have it in court, right? yeah. And so we are going to look and and ninety nine percent of the time, no, hundred percent of the time, 
there are problems in that sure. supervisee's file right. where I'm just like, no, 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 no. This should not be in there. Because, of course, there's no course on how to write notes. That would have been a good one in grad school. Yeah, exactly. There's experience at internship, but that is in a completely different context. It's also not very well informed. I mean, I don't remember anybody teaching me how to write a note. Yeah. There are, there are a couple reasons why agencies basically teach a extremely flawed way of keeping notes. One is, is that they're pri- who's the primary custody of an agency's file? Who, who, who looks at it the most in terms of scrutinizing it? Well, it's usually, you know, agency supervisors, managers, and so forth, right? But, but who, we're talking about who that is, it's the government, whoever is, you know, funding the agency. Right. It's an auditing body hired by the government. Right. By, you know, med- the, the state government says we're spending, you know, millions of dollars on mental health care right. in our county, right. in this county. We want, and so they hire an outside auditor to go to these agencies and scrutinize whether or not they're spending their money well enough. Well, that customer, that is that, is that auditor. Right. So many agencies are geared towards that auditor. Of course. And that is a completely different audience than when you're in private practice, which is in this case, uh, in which there's no auditing body. You're just, you don't have to justify to anyone in terms of in that way the treatment plan, what you're doing is in terms of keeping notes, especially in a family therapy situation like this is this file is a record of that. That is of interest to people regarding the, the suitability of each parent, you know, like that's not the purpose of the, of the file gets used, but that's how it gets used. Yeah. Right. So at agencies, supervisors want, Tons of data, typically, not all of them, but a lot of these supervisors, they, they want you to write down like lots of details, right? So, you know, kid uh, told me that dad was yelling at her the other day. Right. So to an auditor, they're like, oh, okay, well, this kid's suffering. And so it kind of justifies, you know, like it, they're, they're looking for like a, a bolstering of suffering and of need of, of money being poured into this. Right. You know? Whereas if you write very little notes, like um, discussed uh, solutions to the client's concerns regarding conflict in the family or something, you know, it's it's not robust enough to sort of like prove to an auditor that they're spending their money correctly. Right. But in private practice, it's the complete opposite. You want to actually have very little in there because if it does get pulled – then, especially in a situation like this, like anything that can be used against you will. It's that's the same thing. That's why when a police officer you know arrests you, they are forced to tell you anything you say can and might be used against you. The reason why they say that to you is to protect your rights because the more you say, because you're not an expert on how to cover your own ass, the more you say, the worse off you are. Well, the same is true in taking notes as a therapist. The more you say in your notes, potentially the worse off you are. Um, you have to say some things. There are certain things you have to say, but if there's very little in the notes, then there's very little chance you're going to get in trouble. You know, things like, um, you know, m- I spoke with mom and daughter in this session. They wanted to talk about how to reduce stress. We talked about solutions to reducing stress including better sleep habits, 
better communication skills and um, a uh, how to en- enjoy each other's company. Okay, that is descriptive enough for me to, as an outside observer, to know what you did in that session. Would you think that would be sufficient? Oh yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it also doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't tell you anything. Now, in that session, the daughter might have said things like, "My father, I hate him." Yeah, and the mother could say things like, "I think that my ex-husband is abusive." Yeah. The daughter could say things like, I never want to see my father again. Now, that doesn't need to be in the file. What, what I said in the file was, you know, accurate. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a lie. Discussed conflict in family. Right. But it's not specific enough to get me in trouble down the line. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so, anyway. So, what we're talking about is who's the audience for this progress note. Right. And what I want to be thinking about is, how do I protect my license because nobody else gives a shit? Right. Because the only people that will ever ever care about what's... Because clients never pull their file just for their own shits and giggles. No. I mean, I've never had a client just say like, I'm just curious what's in my file, you know? Yeah. I've never had that happen. Maybe in my agency once or twice or something, but, but that's very rare. Um, even though, you know, they could at any time. Um, if they pulled my file, it'd be completely boring, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but, um, but they never do that. The only reason why anyone ever looks at our files is because they're they're looking for legal ammo, yeah, either against another person or against you, yeah. And so, why put ammo in there for for anybody? I mean, unless your goal in life is to help a lawyer destroy someone else's life, including yours, then just don't put anything in there that doesn't need to be in there. You know? Just trying to decide if that's ever been a goal of mine. To destroy someone's life? Including my own. <laughs> <laughs> Freud would say. <laughs> a masochistic, like, like just y- y- your notes just have all these, like, really self-incriminating right. things. Yeah. I'm a nihilist. I've yeah. got that death. Maybe that's the death instinct. Maybe that's, maybe this counselor was a masochist. <laughs> you know? Um, so, the so, dad gets the notes? Yeah. Dad, dad, well, dad asks for the notes. And what do you think happened? Do you think the counselor uh, gave the notes, gave the file? I'm betting no. Right. The counselor not only did not give the file, but ignored the request. Oh, boy. Another common mistake in these case examples, and every time I read this in these case examples, I laugh out loud because I'm just like, how fucking predictable. Yeah. These, These counselors, I mean, stupidity... You know, it's a pattern, let's just say. <laughs> so not only was she stupid enough to go to, to, to agree to go to court, but then when asked as a legitimate, you know, it's his right, uh, apparently, to, we don't know the specific details, but apparently it was his right to ask for the file. The therapist just, just ignores the request. It. Didn't even say no, just ignored it. Just ignored it. Wow. Um, and so many counselors have no idea what they're doing in these situations. Mm. You know, they freak out. And they just ignore it, and they hope it goes away. Well, guess what happened after that? Uh, somebody got a lawyer and got the notes. Uh, close, uh, eventually. But the father actually showed up at the counselor's oh, office yeah. and said, give me the file. Right. Um, again, I'm not sure on the details, but appeared from the case example that he had a right to the file. Yeah. And what do you think happened? Oh, I bet the counselor said no again. Nope. Uh, the, the counselor agreed and, but sent the father the file three weeks later. 
Um, mm-hmm. It shouldn't have taken that long, no. really, honestly. So you it's just like make a photocopy, right? Right. Yeah. Just it should be fairly. I mean, I understand it might take a bit of time, you know, to make a photocopy, sure, or whatever. But three weeks. She's goading this guy. Or she was freaking out for three weeks. Oh no, I'm sure she was, but she's just firing him up. Right. That's what I always tell people is when someone asks for your file, they often have at least a little bit of animosity towards you. Right. And so why do you want to fan that flame? Right. Like you should be like, oh, sure, right away, sir, and just and hand it over. And if you're smart about it and have good supervision around this and good instruction around this, your file should be totally fine. And what I tell people is, the supervisees is, Every one of your files should be able to be pulled at any point. Right. Because when a file is requested, you should be able to be like, I would love to give you my file. You shouldn't be, there should be no question. And you should be able to hand over that file and be, and, and be able to sleep extremely well that night. Right. How many counselors do you think could do that? How many counselors do you think, if I asked them, um, all your clients... T- tomorrow ask for their file and half of them are a little upset at you how well are you going to sleep tonight how, how many counselors do you think would say uh yeah i'd sleep well tonight virtually none none because almost nobody understands and you know granted gets no instruction and no good sure. supervision around how to deal with this and 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 it's not hard is the thing it requ- actually in the end when you cover your own butt in the situation you actually do less work right because your notes are shorter <laughs> right and more and you end up using similar terms you know um now we've done whole episodes on how to write proper notes and so hey, so let me ask you a question though when you're supervising somebody somebody hires you they say i need you to help me i want you to supervise me do you make this part of your overt agenda like they say well i want to talk about this case and you say yeah, and we got to talk about how you're writing notes in general. I need to see that. Absolutely. Good on you, man. Well, uh, but I'm covering my butt well, because right. if that counselor, if that, if I'm supervising them and their file goes out and it's a shitty file, I'm in trouble. Right. Because I'm responsible for keeping track of that. How many supervisors keep track of their of their supervisees' files? You know, not many. No, a- unless you're at an agency and well, you actually have have to sign off on things, which right. is which is common. But if in, if you're doing private supervision. It's not very often. So, um, so anyway, yeah, uh, it's mainly an issue of of my own worry. Plus, maybe it's a function of family therapy too, because there are so many of these custody battles in family therapy, particularly for beginning family therapists. Because right. beginning family therapists will take any client that comes their way. Like right. I don't take these clients anymore. Yeah. You know, someone calls me up and says. I have, you know, I, I want you to see my kids and, and me. And I'm like, okay, give me a little. I always ask for a little bit more information. You know, I was like, okay, what's, you know, where, so the, is the dad, you know, who, or who's the other parent? And they're like, oh, well, yeah, my ex-husband, you know, about, okay, where are you in terms of your communication? Well, we're not doing well. Okay, well, is there a custody situation? Yeah, we went through a custody battle a few years ago. Then I'm like, I, in my head, I'm like, I'm not going to work with these people. <laughs> and And then I say, and then I, you know, you know, nicely and politely explain like how those sorts of situ- what I, well, what I say is, oh, okay, so part of the issue is is your ex-husband and you are not getting along well. 
right? Yeah, we're not getting we're we're we bear we never talk. We we avoid each other, you know, all the time. Okay, so your and your kids sort of know that, right? Yeah, your kids know that. Okay, well, in order for me to help the situation, we've got to work on that. And you know, the person calling in will be like, uh, well, that's not really going to work because he doesn't he doesn't like therapy. And I'm like, well, in order for me to work with you, I I need to see everybody uh, because. I, as an experienced family therapist, in my experience, if if you and your two kids come in, um, you know, a few months down the line, I'm going to be running up against this dead end street of like, well, what about the dad? And we got to get the dad in here to to work on this too, you know, because he's a part of this problem. And and I just don't want to be hampered by that. And and I frankly would be providing a misservice to you by agreeing to a dead end street like that. Mm. Because a lot of times what ends up happening is, you know, we'll just have months and months of, of sessions in which all three of you are just complaining about him. And I, you know, if, if I don't, so, so if, if I'm going to work with you, I need everyone to be there. So if, if all four of you come into the first session, I will absolutely work with you. And nine times out of 10, that never happens because the dad is either totally against therapy or the parents are so against each other that they would never even want to be in the same room or, and, and I may even throw that, that like, well, the dad will agree to come, but he doesn't want to be in the same room with me. But fine, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have one session in which you, you're in for first half and you're, the dad's in for the second half or something like that. Um, or the, the spouse who was calling me, hates the other person so right. bad they don't even want to they just they just don't even want to be close to that person right and it's like well maybe that's part of the problem you know that your kids are going through um and so that's how i screen people out um and uh anyway so so i think as a function of family therapy being exposed to this so much it's again taught me uh right. that um that reality i guess and i've had so many supervisees who are, you know, I think understandably complete. I have, like I said, I have this one supervisee right now who is calling me every day with new updates about what's happening with this family who's going through a custody battle. And I'm trying to pick up the pieces because I've been hired midstream. And it just teaches you as a supervisor, be very clear with your supervisees from the beginning, like how terrible or what the considerations are before you agree to taking these cases, you know? There's a way to do this without uh, problems, but you have to be very buttoned up and very careful, and you have, there's a lot of things you have to do. It's not like you can't do it. It's just like you have to be very buttoned up. You know, um, Like if I wanted to take one of these cases, I could do it, and if I was buttoned up about it, I'd sleep well at night. But I, I just – it's just not my – you know, it's just not my career goal <laughs> is to – be involved in situations in which it's possible that no one is really interested in therapy and everyone is interested in just like gaining ammo against the other person. Anyway. So the dad pulls the files, gets the files and he found quote unquote notations. I don't know exactly what that means, but the tre- he found notations of the, of the treating counselor was advising the mother in her custody battle, which is again, very common for ignorant counselors to do. And then the ignorant, so the ignorant counselor says, is, is giving the mother kind of advice about custody battle, you know, maybe bring up this or maybe, you know, like there's notations of that. Mm. Not only did the treating counselor do that, which is not a good idea, yeah. 
but also the treating counselor documented it in her file. <laughs> yeah. So not only did she make a mistake, but she, she proudly documented her mistake <laughs> in her file. Um, the, the count, there's also notations of the counselor was encouraging the children to act out against their father. I'm not exactly sure what that meant. It most likely means that the counselor wrote something like, you know, uh, did, talked with a teenager about assertiveness skills, such as how to speak their mind against the father. You know right. what I mean? It probably had some kind of helpful bent to it, but looked at another way, it's like, oh, they this counselor was actually coaching my child on how to oppose me. Right. And so how a lawyer going to try to spin it that way. Right. Maybe they succeed, maybe they don't, but... Why do you want that in there? Yeah. That's the thing. Um, but, you know, it, knowing this counselor, it could have been something like, quote unquote, the mother indicated her ex-husband was yelling at the children. We discussed how to assert herself and how to protect the children from the father's mistreatment. Like, it's not uncommon for, quote unquote, there's not, there's not, it's not uncommon for counselors such as this to write very strong language like that, you know. Um, we discussed how the father's abuse of the children is causing damage, and I discussed how the kids could protect themselves from the father's mistreatment. Now, if the father is legitimately abusing children, then that's a whole other, you know, factor here that we're, we don't know about. But often it's biased assessments that are, you know, not, not in the realm of what we would call legal abuse or that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so what do you think the father did next? You kind of predicted it earlier. but Sure. Got a lawyer. Yeah. Right. So the father files a complaint to the state license, oh, right, licensing board. Right, yeah. Um, the state investigated the situation. What do you think the state's opinion was after investigating? So they interview the father and the, they look at the file and all this stuff. What, what do you think they're... That they're, the complaint is grounded? Yeah. The state found that the treating counselor's conduct was, quote, unquote, unprofessional. What do you, what do you think the specific findings were regarding... You know, like, why would they... Practicing outside the scope of her expertise? Exactly. Um, I don't know. Do they have uh, ethical code around, um, you know, biasing parties against one another? Yep. Bias. Yeah. Yeah. And multiple relationships. So so those are the three things. You got two out of three. So, so right. uh, Multiple relationships, both... she, She was acting as both a counselor which is a one relationship. Right. And as a parenting evaluator. Right. Which is a whole other relationship. Um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, evaluators do not provide treatment and treaters do not provide evaluations. Uh, two, as you said, personal bias against the father. Testifying against him without enough data. Yeah. I mean, she didn't, she never interviewed him. Interviewed him. She, I mean, let me, to those out there, and I know I've talked about this before, let me describe to you very briefly what a parenting evaluation involves. It does not involve just listening to the kids talk about the dad, okay? Because logical people understand that that might not be accurate, you know? <laughs> so what parenting – well, what do you think – do you know what's involved in an actual parenting evaluation? I know a little. Okay, what, what, what do you know? Well, it's a lot of observation of parent-child interaction. Exactly. Duh, right? If you want to know – what something is, then you have to fucking look at it. You can't just hear a story about it. You know, you physicians don't go. Yeah, my friend, I think she has cancer. Oh, whatever. Well, I don't know. She can't. 
the doc, the physician, yep, cancer. Physician said, well, bring that person in. I need to look at the cancer to find it, you know. Again, I'm not a physician, so that's not what they would say, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So uh, an actual parenting evaluation looks at the parenting and observes it, watches the parenting in action over a number of different contexts over a long period of time. Psycholo- forensic psychologists will actually go into the home and say, okay, father, mother, do something with your kids. Just, you know, have an activity, do something. And I'm going to be over here and, you know, don't interact with me. I'm just going to watch. Like, make a dinner together, play a game together, uh, watch TV, you know, do something interactive. And the now the psychologist knows that the parent is on their best behavior, but any parent understands that even when you're being watched and scrutinized, you're not necessarily always going to be uh, the most rational and like calm because kids are triggering in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Particularly if there's something wrong with you, you know, it, you're going to exhibit that at least the tip of the iceberg and a good parenting evaluator will be able to pick up on that. So evaluator is not going to look at you for 25 minutes and say, well, here's the kind of parent you are. Right. They're going to look at you over hours. Yeah. Yeah. They're also going to do full batteries on everyone involved. Not right. full, but, you know, the uh, a, enough measures and assessment measures, standardized measures that are have been scientifically evaluated for their accuracy of assessment. So you're going to p- personality assessments on the on the father and right. the, and on the mother. Right. You're going to do uh, interviews with the kids. You're going to do interviews maybe with with people outside the family, you know, maybe extended family, maybe teachers or, you know, neighbors, this sort of thing. Um, So that's what parenting evaluation is. Just talking with the kids is not anywhere fucking near that, right? (laughs) So when you engage in the parenting evaluation profession, that is essentially what you're doing. You're, You're essentially, you know... If someone comes to you and says, I would like you to testify in court, so so Bob, one of your clients comes to you and says, so my doctor provided me with this medication for my heart troubles, and it was a bad medication, and I want you to testify in court that this medication was actually bad for me. Would you do that, Bob? <laughs> Hell no. What do I know about meds? <laughs> right. Well, that is exactly what it is happening when a client asks you right. or anyone, uh, you know, this person to provide a parenting evaluation in court. Right. It's exactly the same. You're asking for, they're asking you to do something that a whole other profession does that you are not trained in and you know you're not trained in it. Right. And you couldn't do even if you were trained in it because you're the ther- you're the treating counselor. So, so yeah, personal bias against the father. And then the last thing you mentioned here was acting outside of her competency. She's not trained as a parenting evaluator. Um, okay. So what happened? Uh, well, what do you think happened? What do you think the state? So the state found her to be unprofessional for these three reasons. What do you think they did to her? Well, they either put her on probation or yanked her license. Uh, no. So this is another thing that I tell people is like, um, is that as supervisees, as I say, like with this one that's near the cliff, I'm like, well, so yeah, you've made mistakes and your supervisor, frankly, 
encouraged you or allowed you to make these mistakes. And they were mistakes. And we're going to try to, we're going to try to pick up those mistakes. Yeah. And you've already done some things that if they decided to complain about you, you have no defense. There, there are things that you've done that there's no defense for. Yeah. You, you've, you've act, you've broken confidentiality. You've, um, you've done things that you're not qualified. You know, I essentially have someone who did this exact same thing because it's so common. Yeah. And, but what I said to her was the worst case scenario, we, we can pick up the pieces and try to avoid people actually taking action against you. You know, we're going to apologize. We're going to, we're going to make it right. Nice. You know, but the, the issue uh, is even if this doesn't work and they end up pursuing this, which isn't very likely if we know how to strategize about this, um, and even if you're found to be in error, the worst that can happen to you isn't actually that bad. As, ex- as an example, this treating counselor was caught completely red-handed and had been, you know, has documented herself into a corner. Right. They did the following three things. They, they, there was a, a quote-unquote letter of reprimand. I don't even know what that means. It's like, is that like a public letter or is that just like a letter from – I think that's just a letter from the licensing board reprimanding her. And maybe it's a part of like an official record if someone Googles, you know, who knows. Yeah. But uh, the second thing they did to her is she has to work under supervision for one year. Oh. So that's not bad. That's actually good. Yeah. Some people actually really like that. Yeah. Um, actually one of the patrons of the podcast just hired me as a consultant because in his jurisdiction for your entire career, uh, as a part of your ongoing continuum education, you actually have to engage in consultation like activities, official, you know, like it's a part of your, so you and I in state of Washington, we have continuum education requirements. Yeah. Well, wouldn't it be kind of nice if like some of those continuum education requirements were actually like consultation related you know it would because it's one thing to take a class and a lot of them are online now right and require no you know back and forth yeah and um so it's kind of a cool requirement i agree yeah yeah so so he's hiring me as you know to meet that to meet that requirement but but anyway so so supervision this punishment is actually potential she might actually go well you know that's kind of nice i get to talk to supervisor and then the third thing is 100 hours of continuing education. Um, that's a lot of continuing ed. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, is it on any particular topic or? No. Um, it didn't specify. It didn't specify. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I figured that that's 17 full days of classes. <laughs> uh, and, they're, you know, classes are usually like Saturdays, yeah. you know. And so that's like a, you know, it's, a, it's like every other weekend. Every other Saturday for a year, you're yeah. going to some continuing ed class. You know, if I were her, I'd be happy. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, a letter of reprimand. I don't even yeah. know what that is. Uh, supervision and then more continuing ed that, frankly, everyone should be doing anyway. This only helps your career. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you win. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe it says something about the licensing board. They do not want to get rid of people. Right. They want to make people competent. Right. It's in the public interest to take a nearly competent person and make them comp- all the way competent. <laughs> and you know, after going through this experience, she's never going to make the same mistake no. again, or at least I hope. No, probably not. And but you, yeah. you think the people that are on the licensing board are sympathetic? I do. Yeah. 
Uh, ethics board, same. Yeah. So our professional organizations are, you know, the ethics board people. I've I've met people on my ethics board, my national organization of marriage and family therapy, and they give trainings, and I and I've spoken with them, you know, personally, and they're, you know, they were us, and and then they they became elderly statesmen in the field, and they were just given this thing, you know, they they they're not lawyers, they're they're us. And so they understand the nuances and and the that our heart is probably in the right place, right. and that it's sometimes hard given certain things. And so, in my experience, uh, the authorities are often really quite sympathetic to us. In some ways, almost too sympathetic. In, in some cases, like in this case, I don't know. Maybe this is the best thing. I, I just kind of wish there was a little more. I don't know. Maybe supervision you? for three years or something. I don't know. <laughs> just it seems like you know when if when you're this bad, it just seems like there should be. But you know, it's that's just me being vindictive and mm. and just a dick. But it you know, will this correct the issue? Yeah. And will she never do it again? Yes. Yeah. So that's you know, it's for the best. Okay. So beyond her license and the licensing board and the state stuff, any other action against her? What do you think? Well, there's a civil case. Right, good. So that's always there's always two things. You got your you got your license that can be taken away or sanctions can be put on your license. So if she wanted to, she could be like, "Well, I don't want my license." And she yeah. wouldn't have to go through these things Surrender and render it. Yeah, she just give her license back and then blah blah. So you have that whole court situation. And ethics boards will um, comment on that, you know, that's, and they'll also potentially take away your, your professional association credit, which isn't that big of a deal, frankly. I mean, I wasn't a double AMFT member for most of my career. Um, so that's not that big of a deal, but, um, but the other thing is civil court, you know, uh, damages, right? So yeah, the father filed a malpractice claim, against the treating counselor and the owner of the agency, by the way. Oh, yeah, we didn't... Are we going to get to the consulting part? Right. Okay. So so we'll get into that. Well, what do you think? What What do you think the problem was there? Why did the father's lawyer say, you know what, we should go after the agency too? Well, there must have been some kind of trail. Right, like what? Um, notes or references to consultation that perhaps, given what you said at the beginning, uh, there weren't notes. Right. So, well, and or maybe the advice, because the, as we were talking about in the beginning, this treating counselor presumably would go to these lunch meetings meetings. and informally talk about clients with names and would have been getting advice about how to treat this particular client, whether or not she should go to court, for instance. You know she brought that up. When you get asked to go to court or when you go to court or when you're file gets pulled, that's one of the first things you're going to present on, unless you're a complete dumbass. But <laughs> but that's the one of the, you're going to be like, you know what? One of my clients is asking me to go to court, you know, and, right. you know, this father is, you know, it's going to be a thorn in your side. I am 100% sure that was one of the first things she talked about. And so what were they saying to her? Well, they don't have any documentation of it. Right. And so this agency, essentially, when, when uh, and this is another thing. It, it's unfair in my mind to hold the, the agency accountable right. because the agency is just a collective of therapists. Right. It's just 11 people like you and me plus nine of our you know fellow colleagues. We just sort of share an office. 
And then every once in a while, we talk about cases. Well, I don't think it's fair if you, Bob, do something wrong and I get sued for it. Absolutely. You know, but the law does not see it that way. The courts do not see it that way necessarily. That's the issue. So if she had, let's say she rents an office, just her own office under her own umbrella in a, say, a building yeah. where there are seven other, other therapists, whatever, practicing, who are just colleagues, right? but not part of the same kind of, you know, in this case, agency. Organization, right. What's What happens? It's a, it's a good question. Yeah. Because my guess is, is that the way the law would see that, given their track record in situations like this, is they would actually consider those to be uh, consultations that the other person might be liable for if if they were signing off on these behaviors that the treating counselor was doing. Right. Now, the difference in that scenario that you brought up is there's no organization to sue. You're right. essentially trying to drag in another totally independent person who just happens to be in the same building. Right. But in this situation, you have 11 people in one organization, and there's these consultation meetings that right. are kind of starting to look like, yeah. from the outside anyway, like official case consultation meetings. Yeah. Especially the fact that they brought up names. That's that's really the key, you know? Yeah, say more about that. Well, when you bring up names, you're, you're treating it like we are a collective, and this is a treatment team. That's, that's, how, it's, that's how it looks like. You know, when... Imagine physicians, you know, it's like you're, you got a, a, an iffy situation with surgery or something, and the, the lead physician brings uh, this, you know, thing to the anesthesiologist and, the, you know, the neurologist and there's all the, the, you know, all these other people, and you, you're, you're as a team deciding on what you're going to do. Well, that's how this kind of looks. Right. It looks like a team approach. Whereas right. if you if you're just talking like, oh, I'm kind of stressed out because you know my I have a client and it's kind of giving me some trouble. Well, then you're just kind of venting. <laughs> you know, you're just kind of you're just kind of bitching about something. You're not getting like a specific. Well, what what do we decide as a collective what to do with this one client? And the person who perhaps would give advice is not thinking that they are or operating under the notion that what they're saying is somehow binding as supervision or consultation right. or any kind of official thing. It's like, I heard about this. I might not have heard all the details. Right. 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 And so, again, the way you and I would see this, and I, the vast majority of people in our profession, they'd be like, well, it's just an informal consultation. I, I don't want to be held to the advice I gave in that situation because I don't know all the details. Right. Well, this is why you have to read these case examples is because the law and the judges and all these other people, they don't give a fuck about how we see things. They, they, they have all the power. They don't care. Or and, no. Yeah. I mean, all you got to do is look at the Philando Castile case and realize, like, not everyone thinks rationally about things. Do you know the Philando no, Castile? one? He's the guy who got shot by Geronimo Yanez in Minnesota. Anyway, it's one of the cop shooting situations and the cop got off scot-free and it's oh. it's pretty ridiculous yeah actually there's a podcast called 74 seconds i recommend everyone listen to it it's only like 15 episodes and each episode is very short like five minutes and you get like a very good idea of this case and you know they 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 don't they're not just pontificating like me that they, they actually provide like you know, the actual audio of certain things and you get you're like, oh, interesting, you know. Anyway, 74 seconds, it's great. Um, 
So the father files a malpractice claim. In the malpractice claim, the father, the father's experts allege that the treating counselor was negligent in the following aspects, um, similar to the way that the Lycee board did, uh, by being a, a counselor and an evaluator, so that dual role, uh, we can agree on that one, by refusing to release the medical records to the yeah. father after receiving two medical record release authorizations. So that's uh, a, a pretty much an obvious one. But then there's these two confusing ones, which I actually often see in these case examples, that, again, illuminates us to how the law sees us, not necessarily how we see us. So uh, another thing that the, uh, counselor, the expert says was that the treating counselor was participating in therapy with the children despite being informed that this therapy was not authorized. So I'm not exactly sure what this means. Like, did the father pull authorization at a certain point and the and the therapist just continued working with the kids? You know, I don't know. So or did a lawyer make a case like that? Somehow? Or did the lawyer make a case like that? So it's like, yeah. that's just something to think about. But then there's this one that I see a lot that I've actually been asked to provide testimony in court to refute, but the person had run out of money, of malpractice money to be able to pay for me <laughs> to come to court. Because I'm not going to just charge my regular rate if I'm going to actually go to court. I mean, it's going to be at least double you know, because it, it's, a, it's stressful and I'm putting myself on the line. Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. And so and she didn't have any funds left to... To, and plus, I'd have to investigate it and get, you know, I'd have to... Yeah, you know, there's some prep, right. Um, but uh, but so, so listen to this. So, quote, by participating in therapy with the children while participating in therapy with the mother. So similar to the, what you said is, well, when you're... You don't see two different people in the family because that's going to create a problem of conflict of interest, shall we say, you know, of... Well, what if the kids have a problem with the mother? Or what if the mother have a problem with the kids? Now right. you're kind of caught in the middle. Well, family therapists, this is our fucking bread and butter. Right. <laughs> we are we purposely put ourselves in the middle of situations like that because we know and have been trained and have experience and have supervision and have Mnuchin and Whitaker and Satir and you know decades of you know prominent people in our field who have done this very thing. But for whatever reason, the courts don't see it this way. Wow. Yeah. So it drives me nuts, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, that was that judge yelling at me about like that she was trying to educate me about what family, you know, people have, people have no idea what mental health treatment is, let alone what family therapy yeah. is, right? And so um, I just don't understand how these, I understand like a, an expert or a lawyer saying this, which sure. is fine, but, but courts often find these to be legitimate, so they ignore the fact that there is this thing called family therapy. Yeah, or or they can't get experts to speak up against it. Or I don't well, you know. Look too expensive. I, yeah. Well, actually, you know, just you know, it's just a joke. But yeah. if she would have contacted me earlier in her, so she was like three or four years into oh, her oh, man. battle. What a, and if she had got me early, she would have had the funds, and we could have avoided the whole thing because um, she wouldn't have had to spend so much money. Uh, spinning her wheels yeah. against this allegation, but wow. anyway. So yeah, that you know that so, again. Now I don't agree with this, but I don't have any power over the fucking law, and so we just have to understand that. So the law said that she's 
So she's negligent. Negligent because she's treating mom and kids. Right. Essentially. Right. Now, the way you can protect yourself against this, in my estimation, is again, you see them all in the first session at once, you know, because you establish early right. on, look, this is family therapy. Right. I'm not treating each individual. This is family therapy. And I might meet individually with some of you at, at times, but really this is family therapy. Now, I would just like to hope that if that came under scrutiny, especially if you had an expert, any sort of expert family therapist witness, they'd be like, sure. I mean, Gottman, for instance, that's that's his model. He sees them as a couple, and right. then he sees them individually at times, right? Uh, usually just once. But once. Yeah. But that's once. I mean, yeah. at least once, you know. That's my model, too. Okay. Yeah. So, you know. It, not Got- Gottman. Not Gottman. It's not my model. <laughs> but I do that thing. Gottman's. Model is one of the most, it's a, you know, if, if you want to talk about standard of practice in couple and family therapy, Gottman's model is, you know, perhaps the most prominent, yeah. you know, I mean, I can't, I can't think of another model that is as prominent as the Gottman model. And so, and in that one, they have at least one session with each person. And yeah. so it's a standard of practice. And I, so I, I don't understand how right. courts and how you can't defend yourself against that. Unless it's the way that this counselor was doing it was they were doing it as individuals. Right. And they were just separate individuals instead of treating it like a family. Anyway. So you're vulnerable if, right. you, if you act in that way as if individuals. Even, right. Even if you're thinking family. Right. Yeah. My guess is the counselor was not a family therapist and didn't know how to do any of this stuff, and, right. no, and no one around her knew how to do it, and she was just kind of getting a little lazy with her ethics, you know, because yeah. she wanted more clients, you know. Um, the father's experts also alleged that the agency mm-hmm. owner was negligent by failing to voice concerns related to the children's care and treatment, um, and so by so by failing to voice concerns so essentially it's that case consultation informal meeting and so that so what they're saying is they're pinning it on the owner of the agency so the owner of the agency is probably just another therapist right and does not consider him or herself to be a supervisor of this treating counselor right. they're probably just colleagues in fact the treating counselor could be more experienced than the owner who knows who knows and so, but they sued that owner, right? Because the owner is in charge, so to speak, of right. these case consultations, even though the owner probably doesn't even think of him or herself as in charge, right? But by definition of from people outside, that's the whole thing. It doesn't matter what we think; it matters what the world thinks, and then the world sees that owner as in charge, right? And the owner is in charge of, and if you're having case consultation esque meetings. The owner is in charge of those meetings, and the owner is in charge of establishing the ethical guidelines and the rules right. for those meetings. So, lesson learned, never own an agency. Yeah, you know? <laughs> piece of cake. So, what did they say what happened? Yeah. So, uh, they w- were sued successfully mm-hmm. in civil court. How much do you think they had to pay? Well, this is the part that gets kind of weird. You know, I don't know, your liability insurance, mine, yeah. is $2 million, $4 million. Yeah. So $2 million per incidence, $4 million aggregate. Why do you have 2 4 Because usually it's one three. I was required to get 2 4 by... I wonder why. An employee assistance... I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. That's fine. Because so, usually the custom is one three. One but, three, right, yeah. But yeah, $1 million, So 
I don't even know what that means. I think we've talked about this before, but I think that means per case you get a million dollars in malpractice, right. you know, lawyers' fees, and you know, depending on the circumstance, I think. And then aggregate of three million, meaning like in a year, in a year, in a year. So you could be sued three up to three times a year for up to a million dollars. So by by that, it seems, and especially if another person is like, "Look, we need to bump it up to two and four just to be safe." Then in your head, you're just like, well, geez, a typical malpractice case must be, right? you know, half a million right. or something, you know, because in order for them to go that high, it must be at least close in that direction, right? But we've talked about these cases before, and the payouts are so small. It's, it's again, as with the licensing board decisions going very easy so to, or very rehabilitation oriented towards the counselors the judges don't uh allow much even though the malpractice i'm assuming would pay for it they don't actually uh impose many much damages the payment was thirty thousand dollars wow just 30 but the legal expenses were thirty one thousand so you know so you had so they the father got 30 grand right but the and who knows how much the his lawyer cost right and then the legal expenses to the counselor was thirty one thousand, which is you know pretty pretty small. Right. Of course, the the downside for her is she probably can't get liability insurance now. Oh, really? Yeah. Or very expensive. That's a great question. I don't even know if that would make a difference. Like, I don't know if there would be like a you know if you get a DUI right and you get really expensive car insurance. Yeah. I don't know if they have expensive. Well, isn't it, you know, isn't that sort of like, I would imagine the way they'd approach it, it's like, well, you're, you know, you're a liability, but, and if you want us to cover, you're going to have to pay like 10 times as much, you know, to offset the risk or something, you know, but have you heard stories of people not getting malpractice insurance? Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. You've heard of people are like, I can't even get malpractice insurance anymore. A colleague of mine was in a situation where she was, uh... Let's see, what was the case? She was accused of doing something unethical. Yeah. And it went to the state licensing board. Yeah. And when her liability insurance came up, you know, you do those questionnaires. Have you ever been blah, 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 blah. You know, and if you answer yes, you have to provide a statement. Yeah. So she answered yes, that she had indeed been accused. It was unfounded. It didn't go any further. Unfounded. Unfounded. And the insurance company threatened to drop her. But did it? Uh, yeah, no, I, let's see. They didn't drop her, and I I think it's because, you know what, I can't remember the details yeah. of how it was they didn't drop her, but it wasn't because they were actually willing to cover her and just say, oh, okay, it's unfounded. She found a way around inside their system, like another slice of their company, another another part of their company was willing to insure her. I can't remember the details. Interesting. I mean, come to think of it, I would not put it past a for-profit industry saying you're one of 10,000 applicants this year and you know why should we take on someone who is who that yeah. we're going to have to pay out right. tens of thousands of dollars potentially right. you know? so you cost we get 300 from you and we have to pay 60 that's yeah. not yeah. yeah and and yeah I mean we could we could ask you to pay 5,000 a year but you probably wouldn't do that or something you know right um so, yeah, I wouldn't put it past insurance. I mean, you know, insurance agencies for healthcare are notorious yeah. saying like, oh, you have pre-existing, pre-existing condition. We're right. not going to insure you. So, 
man, what would you do if you couldn't get malpractice? Because you, you can't you can't practice if you don't have malpractice. You can't. Like your license depends on having malpractice, right? Yeah, your uh... or is it an ethical issue? I mean, that's a really good question. I don't. Uh, you can actually have a license and not have liability insurance. Yeah, I think I think you. I don't think your career is over. I think no. you're just wide open to having your home taken away you, or something. You, right, you could do that, and you probably can't get on an insurance panel without it. Right, but if you're just taking fee for service, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, right. right. You actually, so there's certain organizations that won't work with you unless you provide proof of insurance, right? But but clients don't ask for proof of insurance no. and the licensing board doesn't ask for proof of insurance. So, so your career would be massively impacted. Yeah. And there's probably has been. Yeah. And you're like wildly open to some serious terribleness, but then you can protect yourself by having an LLC. Right. And then, you know, cause your, your business doesn't have much assets to be taken away if you get sued, you know? Don't bank on that as being protection. Yeah. You could still lose your home even if you're an LLC. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's not like Exxon. Yeah. You know, that's a corporation and, you know, the owner of Exxon isn't going to get their house repossessed. The company's just going to get this. But we don't have the same, the exact same kind of protections even if you're an LLC. Interesting. Yeah. But our malpractice is there too. Yeah, right. To help us. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right. Well, what's the moral of the story, Bob? Well, two. One one is be careful, know what you're doing. And the second one, at least the one I'm taking away, is people that get sued are not bad people. It's not like she was fucking her client and doing something like that. <laughs> yeah. She was ignorant. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and maybe co- poorly trained and poorly supervised. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a nice thing to say. I've been hacking on her, calling her stupid and ignorant and you know all sorts of bad words, um, which I, I still hold to be true. But um, there's reasons for those ignorance that are, you know, she she didn't yeah. wake up in the morning and say, ha, 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 I'm going to be right. stupid today. Yeah. You know, it was no one in our prof- very, I've never met a person in our profession yeah. who willingly, willfully does something ignorant or stupid. Right. It's it's just everyone's trying their best. And, right. and, if, and if she knew, she wouldn't have done these things. She would not have. You know, it, it's, it's a matter of knowing. Um, my... When I call her ignorant, I should say we are ignorant as a profession. Yeah. I, it's more of an it's it's a hundred percent an indictment on us as a profession, not helping people be aware of this sort right. of stuff. I think that's what you get impassioned about: is we need to be smarter, we need to be more educated. Yeah, not you're looking for somebody to target. So that Schadenfreude, it's not exactly that. It's not exactly. Well, you can have Schadenfreude to an entire industry, you know. Well, okay, maybe it's that. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Uh, to reiterate what you're saying, uh, number one, I've said this already 10,000 times on this podcast, but stop providing parenting evaluations unless you are competent in that activity, meaning that you have taken courses you have maybe even a license, like a psychology license. So essentially, psychologists, licensed psychologists are probably the only people who can provide parenting evaluations. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's probably some master's level people who have been trained specifically and da-da-da. But uh, so stop doing that. Um, and especially if you're, if you're the treating therapist, by also don't do that. Um, number two. Don't testify in fucking court. I mean, what are you doing? Uh, you realize court is a 
you know, it's the wood chipper <laughs> to, to use that metaphor again. The court is, especially if you're on one side again, when I would go to court, I was on no one's side. So I didn't care. I was just like, well, I'll just tell Expert you what. witness. Yeah. I just sort of given my opinion. And usually I had everyone's interest in mind because I'm a family therapist. But if you're on one side against the other side, there is a professional human being who has gone to, you know, years and years of training and who loves being in court. They, you know, when they were 15, they were told, oh, you're a good arguer. You're kind of a dick. You'd be a good lawyer, you know? <laughs> and then they grow up and they get power and da da da. They, it's their job. And they've been thinking about it for weeks how they are going to destroy you. And, you are not prepared for that unless you are a forensic person who goes to court often. I know people who train in forensic psychology who, even after tons of training and supervision, they're still shitting a brick before they go into court. I would. Yeah. So, you know, don't testify in court unless you, you know, are an expert in testifying in court. Right. Also, stop trying to save everybody. It's not your job to save families from, you know, evil ex-husbands. You, it's your job to provide therapy. Yeah. It's, your, it's your job to sit there with those clients and provide therapy and counseling in that situation. It is not your job to run out to court and protect them from the world. So that's a very important thing to internalize. Also, uh, stop thinking you know what's best. Mm. You do not know what's best. You do not know who the best parent is. You don't know shit. You are just a count, a stupid. We're all stupid counselors <laughs> who know nothing other than how to care, how to listen, how to empathize, how to provide some parenting advice. But we do not know what is best for people's lives. We don't know who parent, what parent should be in primary custody. We don't know what pe- whether or not people should be uh, divorced or not. We don't, we don't know anything. I take great comfort in the fact that I know nothing. Yeah, because you don't. That's the point. Not only is it comforting, but you don't know. Like, uh, interface with enough human beings, and you'll realize there, there's an infinite variability in the right path of life. You know, some people quit their job and climb Mount Kilimanjaro, wherever that is, and they die on top of that mountain, and they consider that to be a worthy life. There are people who bungee jump and um, wear weird hats. Like, there's a lot of different paths in life. Your path in life does not translate to everyone else's path in life. So you don't, you don't know. So stop acting like you know things because you don't. Also, consult, consult, consult. If she would have consulted with anyone who had any idea what they were talking about, they'd have been like, no, 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 no. You're, you're not going to – I do not recommend you go to court. Mm-hmm. I don't even recommend you. I recommend you fire this client, like or you know whatever yeah. it is. You know, it's just protect like, yourself. Yeah, uh, da da da. Um, also, moral of the story: keep records. Keep records of your consultations. Uh, and if you're an organization, be very careful about what is happening in those case consultations and how they're being documented. Um, the the practical reality of this is. No one's going to take notes on every single case consultation. But if there is a case consultation, like like this supervisee that I'm talking away from the cliff, I'm writing down a lot of stuff. With other supervisees, with other clients, I don't write down anything necessarily um, or very little. But with this, with, with this 
this uh, supervisee, she has two of these clients that are that she's in trouble with right now. And I've taken pages and pages of notes. So you use the you adopt your note taking strategy to your situation. You either write a little, right, or you write a lot, right. You write a you write a little with most people, and when you're trying to cover your ass, you write a lot. But you write in a way that covers your ass. You right. don't write in a way that's necessarily a document of what happens. <laughs> Serve you, it up for a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You document like if I get in the crosshairs, what do I need to write down that protects me? You know, and that's a that's a skill. You know, that's that's something that you learn, and so uh, make sure you do that as well because I. I love my job. I love my work. I love my clients. I love my supervisees. But I'm not going to ruin my life and and lie awake at night wondering if I'm going to, you know, get ruined in court or something or embarrassed at the very least um for these people, you know. It's I I again, love them all, but I'm not going to ruin my life over it. And and so, uh I have boundaries and I have practices and I will I'll charge people for it. So when supervisees hire me for doing this stuff, I'm like, okay. So this is I'm just going to tell you this is not a typical supervision situation. Here here are my limits and here's my rate and here are my requirements. And um and before you hire me for this, this is what I what I require um because this is likely going to cost you a lot of money because it's likely going to cost me a lot of time. Because I can't, I can't meet with you once a month to talk about. It. We're gonna have to talk like sporadically on on the fly, like maybe once a week. Yeah. And so this that's gonna be 150 bucks a week, maybe. And if that's not, if you don't want to do that, then I can't take you on. Right. And so as a supervisor, you have to, you know, present those those boundaries because I don't want to, I don't want to lose sleep over it myself. Yeah. And that so that's all it comes down to is like. If you if you have if you know how to establish boundaries and so for this client you know someone calls you up and says you know like what you we demonstrated with you you know you as demonstrated a boundary I, I I'm not going to testify in court because da 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 yeah it's you know it's about understanding your world and, and establishing boundaries you know um, you, good self care is good client care yes it's it's self care um, there's no reason I mean <laughs> my supervisee that I took on. Not only was she um, testifying, and she's smart. She's a smart woman. She's a very smart person because um, I've known her from previous supervision experiences. Um, and but she had she not only has she done those other things, but she's also uh, provided many reports to the lawyers. Like the lawyer, like her, the lawyer, the different lawyers have been calling her, and going, "Can you provide a statement on this issue?" And she'll just she'll just send a report like a tiny little report. And I'm like, all that's stopping, you know, that is not your role. It's, it's not putting yourself uh, not at risk. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you're not the lawyer's little lackey. You're not, you know, the lawyer would love you to be a lackey, but that's not in your best interest. And it's frankly not in the interest of the treatment, you know, because, because now you're essentially, you know, you're stepping into this other role and and no one's going to trust you anymore. They're going to come into therapy with you, and they're going to be like, "Well, what's going to be used against me?" Right. She's freely communicating with my with these lawyers. Like, what is she going to say to these people? So, anyway, well, thank you for going with me on another Sean Freud journey, Bob. A little deep diving. 
<laughs> that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for being patrons, everyone. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>